0: And thanks for listening.
1: 2021 began with a fresh start and high hopes for ambitious climate action. But how much will actually get done? Climate One conversations feature all aspects of the climate emergency, the individual and the systemic, the exciting and the scary, people with power and those disempowered. I'm Greg Dalton. Joe Biden is tasking every corner of the federal government to confront the climate crisis. And while he faces fierce blowback from Republicans in Congress, there are signs that when it comes to conservative thought, the wind may be changing.
2: The polling that we've seen, the focus grouping that we've conducted uh, shows that there's an, an ever rising concern around uh, climate change and, and even more so just a desire for Republicans to take a lead in clean energy policy from all sectors of the party, even from the most conservative folks in the country.
1: Rich Powell heads up ClearPath, a right-leaning, climate-focused think tank in Washington, D.C. Later in the program, we'll hear more from Powell about the moderate Republican view of the transition to clean energy. I'll also talk with Ben Geeman, energy reporter for Axios, about pathways to getting some of Biden's climate agenda through a deeply divided Congress. Democrats have been planning for this political moment since they retook the House two years ago. Speaker Nancy Pelosi formed the bipartisan House Select Committee on the Climate Crisis to develop policy recommendations.
0: We've really worked well together over the past year in crafting our climate crisis action plan. What I'm hopeful for now is we have a partner in the White House and the administration. We're not doing this alone.
1: My first guest, Florida Democratic Representative Kathy Castor, chairs the committee, which released its report last June. The plan presents detailed solutions designed to get the United States to net zero carbon emissions by 2050, targeting everything from agriculture to public health to infrastructure.
0: After a year of very broad outreach to entrepreneurs and scientists and farmers and faith leaders and youth activists we compiled the most impactful set of recommendations for the United States Congress when it comes to clean energy, resilience, and adaptation in the history of the Congress. And now we're marching forward to enact those recommendations into law and trying to do as much as possible in a bipartisan way. Uh, For example, at the end of the year, uh, there was an energy package, uh, uh, didn't get a lot of attention, but for example, we uh, agreed to phase out the use of hydrofluorocarbons, HFCs, very damaging greenhouse gas. We agreed in a bipartisan fashion to invest more in research and development. We want to do more of that. We permanently funded the Land and Water Conservation Fund, the John Dingle Act. That will preserve millions of acres of land and wilderness and rivers across every state. Uh, but we've got to... Uh, Clearly, we've got to be more ambitious We're we're running out of time to to do what we need to do on climate action to avoid the worst impacts of the climate crisis.
1: Right. And the bill you're referring to championed by Alaska Senator Lisa Murkowski was about a 40 billion dollar bill. Joe Biden has a nearly two trillion dollar bill. That's a big difference. Uh, Is that kind of ambition possible now in the shadow of covid and how will the country pay for these initiatives?
0: It's absolutely necessary. Uh, we know that coming out of the coronavirus pandemic, uh, we're focused a lot right now in the Congress on just stabilization and relief. And the, we intend to pass the American Rescue Plan that will have some uh, climate uh, investments on environmental justice grants and, and help for to make uh, electricity more affordable. But you're right, the big package is, now being discussed in the Congress, with the White House, on a bipartisan basis, with stakeholders and people all across the country, because we we understand that we don't have any more time to waste. And we're so fortunate we have President Biden in the White House now that can help craft that bipartisan package. And then if we cannot get the bipartisan support that we need, we do have another opportunity to act through... Uh, reconciliation, this this strange congressional invention on doing things with a majority vote rather than 60 votes in the
1: U.S. Senate. Right. And that's sort of the, the one party path possible forward. Climate policies often seesaw as power changes hands in countries and states. A green push is followed by a swing to fossil fuels and then back again. We're seeing that now. Do you think that climate policy needs to be bipartisan in order to be durable?
0: Well, the good news is if you look at public opinion polls across America, vast majority of the public Democrats, Republicans, independents understand and support clean energy broadly. They know that it is a less expensive um, source of energy and it is, uh, it's cleaner. It's better for the public health, the air we breathe. That's certainly an issue now with COVID-19, and uh, I think the case that that folks are open to is the fact that it can create millions of good-paying jobs, provide, as President Biden says, an opportunity to build back better, but that means providing a stronger foundation for the economic well-being of families and communities and workers across America.
1: But as you know, those new clean energy jobs may not be in the same place and go to the same people as the fossil fuel workers who feel threatened. And coal state Democrats have slowed climate progress at critical moments over the past 20 years, 25 years. They're very influential in the divided Congress now. How do you plan to get members of your own party on board who feel threatened by this move away from fossil fuels? Yeah, I think
0: everyone understands that the macro benefits to job creation will be substantial in building the clean cars, in conserving our public lands, making communities more resilient, that clean and green infrastructure package that is on tap. But we're also very mindful to uh, energy workers that uh, even before uh, government provides any carrots or sticks, the the job losses in uh, the coal producing states and in a lot of fossil fuel producing states, they're already shedding those jobs substantially. And that creates a lot of uncertainty. So we we wanna make sure that the jobs that come alongside during the transition really do provide an opportunity for good wages, better opportunities. We have a, a critical weakness in America right now in our supply chains, whether that's health supplies on personal protective equipment, uh, but it also is that industrial base, particularly in the Midwest, that has suffered because of offshoring of jobs. We think in the in clean energy and an adaptation and resilience; those are jobs that cannot be offshore. Plugging, uh, plugging wells, fixing pipelines, reclaiming uh, coal mines. A lot of my colleagues from coal-producing states they say they want their communities want to help determine the future. Maybe. In ecotourism or a new manufacturing sideline, for example, in the massive wind turbines that we're going to need and and the massive new electrical grid, the macro grid that we're going to need and just playing, making our electric grid more resilient to extreme events.
1: Right. Those are homegrown jobs that can't be exported. Uh, Shortly after you were first elected, House Democrats passed an economy-wide climate bill. And in the next election, they lost the House when the Tea Party surged on the scene, partly fueled by uh, energy concerns. How concerned are moderate House Democrats that going big on climate could hand the Republicans the House in 22?
0: well in the in the house we're we're united in following the science and working on practical solutions part of that is ensuring that workers have support along the way that we're answering the call our our moral obligation to communities on the front lines that are uh, much more vulnerable to the impacts of climate and we We've really worked well together over the past year in crafting our climate crisis action plan in the Congress, where just about every member in the Democratic caucus played a role in putting that package together. And then we have a lot of bipartisan bills that uh, are on tap as well. What I'm hopeful for now is we have a partner in the White House and the administration. We're not doing this alone, and we, we know that the the Biden team, they understand this very well. The Biden team is very experienced and sophisticated and they understand the challenges in uh, every district, the differences across communities, across states. And we we simply are committed to not leaving folks behind and really making clean energy and greater resilience tangible uh, for for families and workers.
1: When you first came into Congress, the Republican Party was more on board with climate action, and then they got concerned about primary challenges from the the hard right. Now we have a situation where Sunrise and AOC, they may be uh, teeing up primary challenges to some Democrats if they don't go strong enough on climate. So how are people looking to the, the left flank on climate and, and concerned about if they don't go bold enough, there could be a challenge in a primary?
0: Well, politically is speaking in the... in the house—that's—that's that's not an overriding concern. I mean, thank goodness we've had youth activists out in pre-COVID, out in the streets, marching, uh, demanding action. We need them to to stay engaged and press policymakers. Boy, if I've if learned anything in my years in Congress, just the plain inertia <laughs> really stands in the way of, of progress. But we're at a point now where we have there's such a broad coalition of of stakeholders of people of all political persuasions there they're pressing Congress no matter you know where you stand on the spectrum for very ambitious action. They know that that time is running out and we must act with urgency
1: my guest today is Congresswoman Kathy Castor, Democrat from Tampa. She's chair of the House Select Committee on the Climate Crisis. What conversations are you having with your Republican peers in Florida's congressional delegation about the state's vulnerability to rising seas and other climate impacts? Do you talk with people such as Representative Matt Gates, who, like you, has a military base in his district? He acknowledges climate is affecting his district in the northern part of uh, Florida. What conversation are you having within Florida? It's mostly Republicans in the, in the House delegation from Florida.
0: Yeah, it, fortunately in Florida, we we do have a bipartisan track record uh, on uh, coming together to oppose offshore oil drilling. Our economy is directly tied to clean water and clean beaches. And we lived through a nightmare after the BP Deepwater Horizon blowout. It was a you know, still remains as one of the uh, largest environmental catastrophes ever. And even though we didn't have much oil wash up on Florida beaches, it was, it really socked us economically, a lot of mom and pop uh, businesses, and it's kind of similar to, to COVID in a way. So we've been able to to build that bridge. What what has been missing, and this really goes to uh the lack of leadership in Tallahassee in our state capital is we're, we we're missing the commitment to clean energy. You would think here in the sunshine state, we would be producing an enormous amount, amount of our electricity from solar power. We have great potential to do so, but no, we're the, the state of Florida still only produces about 4% of our electricity from renewables. It's, it, it's uh. Meanwhile, the costs are growing and people know it. They're paying more on their property insurance because of these intense hurricanes. Yeah, we ran out of uh, names, named storms last year. I had to go to the Greek alphabet. Uh, they're more intense. Uh, our summers are longer and hotter. You're paying more on your AC bills, uh, flood insurance is a sling. So there's a disconnect now. And that's why it's so important. The, the federal government provide those carrots and sticks to to states that are recalcitrant where a lot of the the uh, old guard electric utilities are still calling the shots it's time for the the people to call the shots and follow we follow the science and unleash the enormous potential to create jobs
1: a child born in tampa today can expect the sea to rise 2 to 8 feet in their lifetime, an ocean eight feet higher than today. I see the the Bay of Tampa behind you as you were talking to you with, from your home. Uh, how do you get your head around such a dramatic change in one person's lifetime?
0: Wow, that's a, that's uh, really a stunning statistic. Uh, it 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 aligns with what we understand in the Tampa Bay area and how vulnerable vulnerable we are to. Uh, storm surge that if a hurricane surged up Tampa Bay, it would wash out uh, hundreds of thousands of homes and in the heart of our economy. So what what you do, you can't let it overwhelm you. You have to you have to stay the course and make progress. And that's where resiliency and adaptation comes in, and what we have to do to strengthen uh, our coastlines be a better partner with our local communities, give them the tools and resources to plan ahead, to strengthen their water systems, wastewater systems, stormwater, uh, how we plan and grow is vitally important. Uh, and the federal government, we don't have all the money in the world. That's why we, they have to be targeted investments. And oftentimes if federal dollars are gonna come along, uh, what needs to come along with it are, are new standards. And for example, on making the electric grid more resilient. Now, if the federal government is going to fund significant upgrades in the electric grid across the country, then it will be important for states and local communities and utilities to have certain resilience standards. If they had done that in Texas, maybe we would be a whole lot better off and the folks in Texas would be better off.
1: How do you talk to people about climate and make it real for them personally if they haven't experienced it or if they think it's far away and won't affect them? How do you talk to people about climate in your district or elsewhere who think like it's either exaggerated or how do you how do you reach them?
0: It's not that hard anymore. <laughs> but, um <laughs> here in in the state of Florida, extreme heat is is. Really, uh, it's wearing people down. Last year, 2020 was the hottest year on record. Uh, when you add in the humidity, it's completely oppressive. Uh, that impacts everything that we do, the way we work, where kids play outside. Uh, it impacts the food we grow. So people are are awake. They they are awake to to the climate crisis, and they are clamoring for Washington to get its act together. the state of Florida to get its act together. Uh, they don't want to see their wastewater treatment plant overflow with an extreme rainfall event. they They don't want to see these rapidly intensifying hurricanes that that cost lives and cost, cost property and um, this is our challenge. this is our challenge to to galvanize public opinion and and truly follow through. Uh, and meet our moral obligation to our kids and future generations.
1: Florida Representative Kathy Castor, Chair of the House Select Committee on the Climate Crisis. This is Climate One. Coming up, a take from a moderate Republican.
2: In our view, the most important thing is radically reducing the cost and improving the performance of a bunch of clean energy technologies that can then be exported out to the rapidly developing world.
1: This is Climate One, I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about the political reality of decarbonizing the U.S. economy. President Biden embraced bipartisanship throughout his Senate career and tried to foster it in the early days of his presidency. But Republicans in elected office still staunchly defend fossil fuels and often bash renewable power, as they did during the Texas energy debacle, which was mostly caused by natural gas equipment that wasn't weatherized. A small group of moderate Republicans, however, are attempting to craft a conservative plan for a transition away from oil and gas. Rich Powell is executive director of Clear Path, a center right organization focused on using markets and technology to grow the economy and cut carbon emissions. Despite the fractured state of the Republican Party, he says there is a pragmatic middle capable of getting things done on energy and climate.
2: I think we just saw the center of gravity in the party in action in December. So we had uh, in the Energy Act of 2020, uh, 500 pages buried within that 5000 page uh, infrastructure and stimulus bill passed in December, um, which is, I think, you know, according to virtually all observers, the most important piece of climate and energy legislation that's actually been passed out of Congress in more than a decade. Right. I I think we saw where Republicans are, which is in a pretty constructive position on this uh, on this topic, very focused on innovation very focused on making new clean energy technologies that are available for here in the United States, and most importantly, to de- deploy around the world, which is the real challenge in climate change. Uh, along with, you know, pretty open to new incentives in order to deploy these technologies and start, you know, bringing down the costs and learning by doing and um, and all that sort of thing. And that, and that was across a pretty broad range of technologies too.
1: It was. And that was, uh, as you said, addressed uh, innovation, some some regulations, some taxes, kind of the the categories there that was championed by Lisa Murkowski. It was about, what, 40 billion dollars or so. It's a lot of money, but but small relative to the scale that's really needed for the climate issue. So can we go big in a bipartisan way? Uh, well,
2: so, you know, I think, I think small is all in the eyes of the beholder. And, and and when we think about how to think about resources in this space, it's a lot more about where and how we spend the resources than how much we spend on the resources. We shouldn't be in like a, a race to spend more money. What we should be in is a race to spend the money we do have uh, as efficiently and uh, appropriately as possible. And so in our view... The most important thing is radically reducing the cost and improving the performance of a bunch of clean energy technologies that can then be exported out to the rapidly developing world. And so that's things like long duration storage and advanced nuclear energy and fossil fuels with carbon capture, geothermal and all these sorts of things. Um, the Energy Act did that. It set up really aggressive moonshot demonstration programs for all those technologies. That's the innovation side. That's the kind of the, the $40 billion worth of new demonstration programs. And by the way, there, were, there was a lot of other great stuff in that as well. Uh, there was uh, expansions of our work on industrial emissions, which is kind of the next big Frontier uh, as of last year, it's probably the second largest um, source of emissions in the United States and globally, it's a really significant source of emissions, as you know. Uh, and uh, and then in addition to all of that work on the demonstration side, there were also pretty significant extensions to tax incentives as well. So um, you know, again, it's not it's not specifically about the dollars, but you know, that if you took the value of all of those tax credit extensions as well in there, it's a really meaningful bill. If you just look at the 45Q tax incentive, for example, that's the tax incentive for carbon capture that was extended out a few more years from ending in 2023 to ending in 2025. Um, That's a very significant credit uh, and significant resources that that would go into that alongside the extensions that were done for, you know, for wind and solar and, and other technologies. So
1: it sounds like you're saying that confronting climate is good for the U.S. economy
2: uh ab- absolutely it could be good for the us economy if we do it in the right way if if we focus on ways that bring down the cost of the technologies that we're trying to transition to and that increase uh the uh, our opportunities to export and, and retake these in the rest of the world i mean you know we've we have seeded so much ground uh in international exports of technologies to to China um, in sort of allowing them to, to kind of take over the entire uh, you know solar manufacturing chain and large parts of the battery and storage manufacturing chain we've seeded a lot of the ground on nuclear exports to both Russia and China they really dominate international nuclear trade at this point it's a place we've really fallen behind we have a chance to catch back up on the advanced technologies whether that's advanced nuclear or really advanced storage technology or next generation renewables like perovskite solar or floating offshore wind or enhanced geothermal, we, we still have a chance to come back and recapture those benefits. But it's going to take an investment that's going to take a lot of focus.
1: How is climate a generational issue within the Republican Party? Uh,
2: well, so it, it it certainly is. You know, I think, I think really across the board, it, the polling that we've seen, the focus grouping that we've conducted uh, shows that there's an, an ever rising concern around uh, climate change and, and even more so just a desire for Republicans to take a lead in clean energy policy from all sectors of the party, even from the most conservative um, folks in the country. Um, you know, I think that's that's even more true with two big blocks of conservative and sort of moderate independent voters, and that's um, younger voters and that's suburban female voters. And, and I think a lot of conservative politicians also realize that those are folks that are just absolutely necessary for the future viability of the party. Uh, They're certainly going to be necessary for Republicans if they want to try to take back the House uh, in the midterm elections. And in 2023 which they're they're poised to do if kind of passed is if passed as prologue but they're going to need those moderate uh, suburban voters they're going to need those increasingly younger voters to do it so so I think that that's definitely a motivator
1: then help me understand things such as you know the the, the freeze in Texas where wind gets blamed I heard Ted Cruz say that governor Abbotts you know kind of pointed the finger at wind even though uh, Texas gets more of its energy from natural gas and that also went down uh, there's still a narrative in the Republican Party that You know, fossil fuels are are primary and they kind of smear clean energy with the Green New Deal, which is very toxic. So help me understand the rhetoric that we hear with with the actual concerns among Republican voters that you just outlined.
2: So, so I think that there was a lot of unfortunate finger pointing on on both sides of the aisle, frankly, uh, around what were the main causes of the of, of the breakdown in Texas. Let me just start by saying it's a it's an awful tragedy. It's you know as we record this, it, it's still underway, and there are people without power, there are people without water. It's 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 an awful event, um, and so, you know, at, at the risk of armchair quarterbacking, you know, decisions that were made in, in the midst of a of, of a crisis, which I, I feel bad about doing, you know, I think I think there will be an increasing focus on. Resilience in the power grid going forward. I I hope that that conversation leads to an appreciation of all the benefits that a lot of advanced technologies could have, advanced clean technologies could have uh, in a situation like this in the future. If we had had, for example, in Texas, more long duration energy storage, right, that that could have been a significant um, part of the solution to the problem. If we'd had Uh, ultra uh, resilient uh, renewable technologies like enhanced geothermal, that could have been a significant part of the solution if we'd had advanced nuclear technology, which relied less on water and therefore had less of these concerns about freezing and and weatherization. That could have been a low carbon part of the solution to the challenge. Um, And so I think, you know, unfortunately, you know, when these sorts of things happen, people get back into the, you know, uh, renewables versus fossils kind of, you know, um, bipartisan fighting around this. I, I hope that we can Get away from that and, and focus the conversation both on, on the human elements of the tragedy and avoiding that in the future, and, and, and also just on a focus on resilience and, a, and an advanced technologies as a solution.
1: So are we going to see in the 2022 midterm elections, are we going to see Republicans out there campaigning for clean energy? Because so far, we haven't seen that in the last, in the, since John McCain you know, in the last 10 years. It's pretty much been pro-fossil fuels and making fun of the Green New Deal.
2: Well, I would direct every listener to Google uh, Dan Crenshaw climate change political ad and look at the ad that he ran with his own campaign resources in Houston, declaring that he... Totally believes in climate change. He just has a different perspective about how to solve the problem um, than Democrats. I would I direct folks to take a look at the positions that Susan Collins and Peter Meyer and Michelle Steele uh, and Nancy Mace and so many other Republican candidates took around the country on clean energy and climate. I, I do think people are are realizing that one, this is just the right thing to do on the issue. And two, frankly, it's really good politics to run on the issue. So uh, I think we saw quite a bit of that in 2020. And I'm sure we'll see a whole lot more in 2022.
1: You favor nuclear power. The cost of solar and wind power has dropped dramatically in the last decade. Nuclear prices keep rising. Two new plants in Georgia were supposed to be the future of the industry in the United States, a nuclear renaissance, but they are billions of dollars over budget and caused the contractor, Westinghouse, to declare bankruptcy despite nearly $9 billion in federal funding. Simply on economics, it appears that nuclear can't compete with wind, solar, and methane. Is that fair? Uh,
2: so I, I, when we think about nuclear and, and the costs and benefits of nuclear, we think about the costs and benefits of low carbon systems, not any one individual technology. The, the modeling on this is you know, couldn't be clearer. So every se- serious modeler of uh, of a low carbon energy grid sees a role for a flexible 24-7 zero carbon source of energy alongside a lot a variable low cost, zero marginal resource energy. And when you have a mix of those things in the future, that's the lowest cost, zero carbon energy system. Uh, nuclear could play that role in the system. There's a lot of other candidate technologies as well, which is why we focus on a number of different 24 7 clean energy technologies. So, you know, flexible advanced nuclear is one of them, fossil fuels with carbon capture is another, enhanced geothermal, long duration storage, uh, hydrogen produced from zero carbon means. Uh, lots of different horses are in the running there, but I think we should remember that when we 're thinking about how much folks pay on their electric bills they don 't pay something related to the cost of any one source of electricity. they pay costs related to the source the the cost of running the overall electric system, and all of the modeling shows that an electric system which was entirely composed of variable resources would have to be so dramatically overbuilt because of the seasonal variations in those that it would be extraordinarily expensive. So um, that's what we're trying to solve for is what's the lowest cost energy system.
1: I've learned a lot about my white privilege in the past year and just how deep systemic racism is in this this country. And the data is Overwhelming, and as a former McKinsey consultant, you know about data. um, How have you reflected on your own white privilege in the last year?
2: It it has been a um, it's been a a uh, a really eye opening year from that perspective, and uh, you know I think it it has had us thinking you know more broadly about the issue of environmental justice, which is you know the part of that issue that you know most kind of closely you know comes into our space, Um, and the you know the degree to which D- different communities, tr- traditionally disadvantaged communities, um, have had to struggle with both, you know, undue pollution burden, or just you know, lack of access to to, to some of these technologies and um, uh, and the economic opportunity and tax base and jobs and all that that, that comes along with them. And so, you know, as, as we think um, about the issue, it's kind of redoubled our commitment to really focusing on the affordability of clean energy solutions, um, and you know, whether or not there are policy options that would allow traditionally disadvantaged communities to sort of raise their hands and say, you know, we, we want this here, we want this clean energy here, we, we ought to be able to go to the front of the line to get these kinds of developments in because of the jobs that they bring, the clean air benefits, uh, the tax base, and all the other community benefits from, um, from that kind of siting.
1: Right, and affordability is often where energy suppliers will say, hey, we care about or- poor people, so we gotta keep energy cheap. But there's another side to that is which often says that, uh, you know, plants are sited in low-income communities. And there's a lot of, you know, frankly, racism in where the pollution is sited. They don't put the, you know, the waste incinerators and the refineries in the, in the fancy parts of town. And that's – but that's the market incentives are to do that. So does it require policy to kind of guide markets in that way? Because the markets will put the – you know, they'll go for the, the cheapest land where, you know, it's the low-income communities.
2: Sure. Yeah. And, and, and the, I mean, the reverse, unfortunately, is that, you know, you've got a lot of NIMBYism and a lot of uh, NIMSBYism, which is not in my second backyard, um, uh, from from wealthy communities that are the first to say, you know, I don't know if you, you just saw that, you know, these communities in the Hamptons that have just come out and they're, you know, they're suing to stop the transmission lines that would flow from the offshore wind farms that are try, they're trying to be built off of, uh, off of Long Island, very similar to what happened to, with Cape Wind and the, you know, the Kennedy family and the... You know, right, in, uh, right. in Massachusetts, just, you know, a lot of people that, you know, really care about climate change until the infrastructure required to solve climate change moves through their backyard or their community, or they've got to see the dust or the pollution right uh, along the way. So, yeah, I think finding some way that better balances all of those equities. You know, what I'll say about the siting of the clean energy is, look, I mean, this is a big industrial project. Everything is hard on a community. Lots of things are unsightly on a community. Uh, citing clean energy, we're uh, finding ways to control the um, emissions from existing energy, Uh, is something that could be the win-win, right? That could be the thing that brings both the jobs and the tax base and the economic upside to a community and that delivers either clean air or keeps the air clean um, in the first place, right, if, you, if you're putting in a zero emission resource. And I think that those are the sorts of things we should be looking for, like where are the where are the win-wins, and ideally the, the, the triple wins, if you will, but also keep the electricity or the energy broadly affordable for those communities.
1: And, and that example of the Hamptons kind of uh, lays bare that basically people in upper class America want to keep the existing class and power structures in place and just take out Fossil energy and put in clean energy as long as there's no direct impact to them. Do you think we can really solve climate with while keeping the existing power and class structures in place, or is there more fundamental societal change that needs to happen?
2: You know, I I worry about the conflating uh, the climate challenge with the broader sort of social or economic uh, challenges as well. In, in our experience, um, finding the areas of bipartisan. Agreement are all about sort of you know really really narrowing in on the issues where there's where there's the most possible agreement and so we've had concerns for example about the you know the the Green New Deal uh, or some of these other things because they try to they they package all kinds of other issues which frankly for a lot of folks on my side of the aisle are, are highly contentious issues together with climate policy and they treat these as all one big one big in, entangled issue. Uh, and, and I would argue that the more that we can really just focus on the specifics of the of the energy policymaking, uh, the more bipartisan agreement we're going to have in in moving forward. Uh, you know, I, I I do think that the a way that we can solve all of this is, uh, or let me not say solve it, a way that we can alleviate this or or sort of you know um, pull some of these equities together is finding ways that that we can find those those triple wins, finding ways that we can let. Um, disadvantaged communities go to the front of the line, um, whether that's for, you know, receiving the the benefits of nuclear energy development or the jobs associated with nuclear energy development or the tax base associated, you know, that you can actually build real communities around. Uh, that seems like one way that maybe we could help address all these things at the same time.
1: Rich Powell is executive director of Clear Path. This is Climate One. Coming up, energy reporter Ben Geeman on corporate buy-in for Biden's climate agenda.
3: So I think the fact that you've got some of the largest and most powerful corporations signaling support for taking action on climate change will certainly help him. But, you know, the devil is always in the details, right?
2: Hey, everyone. I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate.
1: This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about the politics of accelerating the transition away from fossil fuels to cleaner energy in order to stabilize the climate that supports our lifestyles and economy. Ben Geeman reports on energy and politics for Axios. Corporate support for climate action in the past has focused on splashy ads and safe incremental steps. But more recently, corporations such as Microsoft, Mercedes and Verizon have started to make more specific and bolder pledges and put real money behind their words.
3: Certainly, many, many large companies uh, now have some type of long-term sustainability or carbon emissions pledge, you know, something like net zero or Carbon negative by 2050 has become something of the coin of the realm. And a lot of companies now are also sort of setting even some nearer term targets. Now, the big question now, I sort of think of us in something of the post pledge era, if you will. You know, it used to be big news when a company announced some long term ambition. Now, to me, the question is, what are they going to be doing in the sort of near and medium term to get there? Um, that said, you know, I think certainly this does create some uh, tailwinds for President Biden because he's got this very ambitious climate agenda, but also some real. Constraints that are facing it, notably the very narrowly divided Congress, um, some litigation which maybe we can get into that's near certain. So I think the fact that you've got some of the largest and most powerful corporations signaling support for taking action on climate change will certainly help him. But you know, the devil is always in the details, right? You know, a broad brush ambition is not necessarily the same as. Endorsement of a policy—it's not necessarily even the same as declining to uh, fight a policy in Congress or in the courts.
1: Right, and we've seen that, uh, you know, with uh, General Motors. As soon as Trump is elected, they're like, "Oh, back off the Obama rules." You can easily see General Motors pivoting again quickly. Uh, if there was a Republican president in '24, saying, "Oh, yeah, no, that pledge about gasoline—we could could slow things down." So, I think the real question is, you know, do these companies engage on policy? It's one thing to make, you know, shiny Super Bowl ads. It's another thing to actually get into the trenches in politics. Are they doing that?
3: You know, it varies greatly by company. I mean, the answer is, uh, generally speaking, yes, I think the auto industry is looking for some type of uh, harmony with the new administration. And certainly, you know, for their own reasons, um, you can see that the auto industry is going much more deeply into electric vehicles. Um, Certainly, you know, GM, Ford, Volkswagen, they've all announced very, very large investments. And certainly the kind of political climate, not just in the U.S., but in China and in Europe, to name the other two largest markets, has a lot to do with that. But honestly, I think it's also just sort of seeing where the growth is going to be. I mean, look, let's be honest, of course, right now, electric vehicles are a extraordinarily small slice of the sales pie, but they're growing. And, you know, Wall Street and investors are really sort of talking with their wallets here, right? I mean, we've got this enormous amount of capital pouring into startups, you know, aside from the legacy automakers, we're seeing many startups who have either not made any vehicles at a commercial scale yet or are just getting into commercial production, announcing these deals to go public at some really eye-popping valuation numbers. So I think that there is a recognition out there that a combination of policy, consumer interest, activist pressure, all sorts of other forces are going to be pushing that industry towards electrification. Now, what that means for actually endorsing any type of new set of emissions and mileage standards in the U.S. is something of a uh, is something of a different question.
1: Yeah. Often, I look at the markets and and uh, the federal government and kind of see two different worlds. The markets value Tesla as more than Ford and GM and VW and Toyota combined. Uh, and, you know, over the last 10 years, the S&P has been up over, what, 190 percent and Exxon's been down 40 percent. So 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 the markets are clearly seem to be saying one thing, but in Washington, D.C., the political discussion seems to be on a a different planet. Do you think about like the, you know, the, the Wall Street and Washington seem to be looking at two different things?
3: Yeah, I, th- I think that's a really great point. Um, you know, when it comes to how the markets are viewing electric vehicles, I think there is now more harmony than perhaps there certainly than there was under the uh, under the Trump administration. And I think part of this gets back to something that we opened our discussion with, which is um, what are corporations doing on climate? And one of the areas in which some of the biggest companies in the world, such as Walmart and Amazon, are looking to meet these sustainability pledges is through buying electric vehicles. And so I think that's one of the reasons we're seeing some of this investor excitement around companies as well. And that's because, for example, Amazon, in perhaps the most aggressive moves, has announced a deal uh, about a year ago with this startup called Rivian to buy 100,000 electric delivery vans for them. Now, that's a Target up to 2030, but they hope to have about 10,000 of them on the road by in the 2022 timeframe. So I think, you know, like I said before, you know, corporate procurement is going to be one driver. And that's one of the reasons why I think there's some interest in the electric vehicle market. Also, uh, President Biden, one of the things he can do with his executive power, because certainly there's headwinds in Congress, one of the things he can do is try and boost federal procurement of these vehicles as well. So that's one of the other reasons I think we're getting that uh, some of that strong interest in uh, in the electric vehicle market. But honestly, really, China is the straw that stirs the drink in a lot of ways too. I mean, it's by far the world's largest auto market market. Uh, federal excuse me uh, national support for electric vehicles there is quite strong, and the same holds true for Europe as well, which is quite far ahead of the u s in terms of already starting to implement the type of carbon emission standards that really will drive increasing deployment and sales
1: right and've uh, been, there's been some reports recently about g20 countries uh, making emissions pledges, etc, but the policies are not quite in place to make those pledges realized so one of the um, things that 's out of the bipartisan committee and In the US uh, House of Representatives is to reassert US leadership. So, where is the globe in in terms of meeting those climate pledges?
3: Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, There's been a lot of research, and you can look at it in different ways, but basically, the world is nowhere near on track to meet the ambitions of the Paris Climate Agreement. Now, The world is not most countries, are not even on track to meet the sort of medium term carbon emissions reduction pledges that they'd made in the first round of negotiations uh, and submitted around that first round of negotiations in the creation of the Paris agreement. So that's going to be one of the really big tasks for the Biden administration, because the U.S., you know, China is the world's largest emitter. The U.S. comes after that. And I think the fact that he has appointed John Kerry to this kind of special climate envoy role really illustrates their effort, their interest in sort of having not only the u s take much stronger steps but to essentially try and cajole and work with other countries on a diplomatic front to implement some nearer term policies to really sort of get the emissions trajectory starting to move downward right I mean like you know just like many many big corporations have these long term pledges, many countries do too i mean look China last year announced that it wanted to be carbon neutral by 2060. But that's a long time from now, right? So I think that what there's a lot of interest in is when will their emissions actually peak, let alone get to being carbon neutral, but even stop uh, rising on a a sustained basis and start uh, cutting the, you know, really going downward um, steeply and on what timeframe. Now, the U.S. has a little bit of a credibility problem here, right? Because Um, Doing anything big through Congress is extraordinarily difficult. Now, that's a somewhat evergreen statement and certainly holds true beyond just on climate change, but it's particularly true there. So I think what the challenge for the administration is going to be is not only sort of trying to work with other countries on their uh, clean energy deployment policies and emissions policies, but also show that the U.S. policies that Biden is seeking to implement will be somewhat robust and also sustainable, even with the changes in the in the political winds in the country. You know, one thing that's really interesting is you can tell how committed and uh, interested they are in this diplomatic push, because certainly while John Kerry was the most high profile uh, diplomatic hire, if you will, in the new administration, you're seeing that effort sort of sprinkled throughout. You know, one example that I would give is that the Energy Department, a man named Andrew Light, who had been in the State Department under Obama, has now come back into into the federal government, and he's in an Energy Department international climate role. So I think you're seeing this kind of whole of government approach on climate, and that extends to the multiple parts of the government that have some type of diplomatic function.
1: Yeah, certainly uh climate and environment used to be kind of in a very narrow, narrow lane and kind of a niche issue. And now they've they've infused it throughout the federal government, uh, because it really does touch on everything that we do touch and eat every day. And that's starting to be reflected. Um, Washington Governor Jay Inslee campaigned for president saying he would declare a climate emergency. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer recently floated the idea of President Biden using emergency executive powers. What are the chances of that happening? And what would it enable President Biden to do?
3: you know, declaring emergence in a national emergency does unlock some funding abilities that might not necessarily be there. It also, I believe, unlocks other types of Um, powers. One of them could be, for example, on trade-related restrictions. I'm a little bit fuzzy on this aspect of the law, but one of the very interesting parts of President Biden's campaign platform was trying to make sure that climate is very stitched into the fabric of U.S. trade policy, because one thing that's long been considered a challenge to overcome with international climate action is that you want to avoid, if you have your own emissions restrictions in one country, you don't want that you don't want to sort of create a competitive disadvantage for industries or just sort of have those carbon emissions migrate to other countries. So Biden has discussed the idea of some type of of border carbon adjustments or tariffs. Now, the reporting I've done suggests that it would be much easier to do that with Congress and with some type of congressional authorization, but that there are pathways to do that under executive authorities as well, perhaps if there was an emergency declared.
1: Right. And I think that's really interesting because we've seen that uh, trade and, and carbon has kind of been on the edge before. And, and I've even talked to a lot of people like, oh, we don't want to, you know, tangle carbon up with world trade. It's already complicated enough and start a trade war, et cetera. But that seems to be kind of, you know, inching up, getting a little more attention these days is linking carbon and, and trading so that, uh, for example, countries that are not uh, meeting their commitments, you know, slap a tariff on them from from the polluting countries
3: yeah that's the that, the way you just said it actually is very close to how it 's actually stated in the uh in the biden climate platform that he uh that he ran on um and I think also you you raised an excellent point because this this idea of sort of you know again weaving climate into the fabric of diplomacy and trade and many other areas we're really starting to see a lot of interest in that for example um i think we're going to see the this large executive order that president biden um already issued on climate change calls for the treasury department to have a role in sort of trying to steer and work with the us uh, export and development finance agencies to ensure that they sort of prioritize clean energy and boosting sort of clean energy deployment in other countries and sort of steering export finance in in those directions um, and then one big question around that at the same time is where does that leave other types of fossil fuels um, the u s has sort of seen a very big rise in exports of liquefied natural gas. Um, how the new administration deals with that is something i 'm going to be fascinated to see because on the one hand. Natural gas, when you burn it, um, has far lower carbon emissions than coal. So you saw uh, the president's nominee for energy secretary, Jennifer Granholm, say in written responses um, related to her confirmation hearing that she does see a role for U.S. liquefied natural gas exports um, in in sort of replacing higher fossil fuel or higher emissions fossil fuels in other countries. That said, she sort of paired that by saying we need to make sure that we have a much cleaner domestic industry in the production of that gas, and, and essentially that's code for saying we need to reduce methane emissions associated with that. Even though she, that was sort of the second part of her answer, you saw some immediate concern raised by some of the more lefty parts of the environmental movement who don't like LNG exports at all. Uh, if I had to guess or look into my crystal ball a little bit, which is faulty like every reporter's one uh, is... I'd be very surprised if this administration backed away from U.S. LNG exports. I would never say never, but I'd be a little surprised.
1: Well, and there's some important geostrategic considerations there. The idea of helping Europe get off of Russian gas, for example. And we have a president who's very well-versed in international affairs and geopolitics. And, and so you know, exporting liquid liquefied natural gas can be a, a tool for U.S. Uh, energy diplomacy.
3: That's absolutely right. One of the sort of rare and uncommon through lines through the Obama administration and the Trump administration was this idea that um, U.S. LNG exports can be something of a diplomatic uh, carrot in order to sort of improve energy security in Europe and, you know, work with those allies. Now, we could get into a whole thing about where Trump stood vis-a-vis Russia and how strong or not strong he was. But that said, uh, support for U.S. LNG exports continued both through the Obama and the Trump administrations.
1: Right. But there's a real problem with uh, what you didn't mention is also fracking, because a lot of natural gas is fracked. The methane emissions is one of the big three kind of things that can be done on climate. Um, but fracking and, and uh, the president there looking at the, the sort of the uh, AOC and Sunrise part of the, the party, the Bernie Sanders supporters, uh, they kind of came on board with Biden, but they didn't quite trust him on fracking. So that could be cause some real problems with the left. How much of a voice, you know, and how much is he looking to that left? He seemed to have done a good job bringing them on board f- during the campaign and has them so far, but are they going to stay with him?
3: Yeah, no, you, you I, I think that's exactly right what you said. I mean, Biden, it, there's been something of this dissonance in the idea that Biden, of course, sort of campaigned and had this reputation as this sort of, perhaps middle-of-the-road figure, a somewhat of a centrist, somewhat of a moderate. Um, his climate platform is, by orders of magnitude, stronger than anything that was ever contemplated under the uh, Obama administration. Now, that reflects a lot of things, not just political positioning, but the cost of clean energy, You know how, how it's declined, um, how serious, and what we've learned about uh, the harms from climate change. So there's a lot of reasons for that. But the overall point remains that he made a lot of nods toward things that uh, people on the progressive left very much support. Whether that harmony can continue is going to be a little bit, you know, now we're going to see some of the proof it, you know, being in the, in the pudding. Certainly, I think climate activists have been very pleased by his initial moves coming right out of the gate with this sort of whole of government approach uh, on the topic. So, so far, I think there's harmony, but, you know, Executive orders, I think, are, are often very splashy when they're introduced, and they get a lot of um, they get a lot of attention. And certainly, executive orders can do some things very quickly, right? We saw Biden yank the permit for the Keystone Pipeline. That was a very immediate thing, um, but. Aside from those limited things, I think the better way to look at an executive order is sort of as as firing a starting gun for an extraordinarily long race uh, and a lot of careful and very fraught bureaucratic efforts. So, you know, it's in the implementation of those kind of policies where we might see some of that friction.
1: You've been listening to Climate One. We've been talking about climate policy and politics with Axios energy reporter Ben Geeman. My other guests today were Florida Democratic Representative Kathy Castor and Rich Powell, Executive Director of Clear Path, a center-right think tank in Washington, D.C. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. It really does help advance the climate conversation. Sir Catherine Coxon is our senior producer, and our producer is Tyler Reed. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Steve Fox is director of advancement. Annie Chelsea edited the program. Our audio team is Mark Kirshner, Arnav Gupta, and Andrew Stelzer. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.